So this image we're seeing is from uh, where part of the central freeway in San Francisco used to be, and they okay. built a park here. So um, there's a play structure and, you know, grassy area. And I went there and uh, it was just a, an incredibly peaceful, um, you know, space. And this is, I think, one of the the key examples of, of how a freeway removal can be successful because a freeway has, uh, you know, there's lighting problems uh, during the daytime and at night. Uh, yeah. There are certainly noise problems, and those things can breed, uh, they can attract crime. You know, right. uh, you can't hear somebody screaming if there's a freeway right next to you, and, and you know, uh, maybe you can get away with uh, doing some bad stuff. So this neighborhood of Hayes Valley that used to have a freeway running through it has been completely transformed. Hey everyone, welcome to the Active Towns channel and the Active Towns podcast. I'm John Zimmerman, and that was Andrew Bowen from KPBS in San Diego and the Freeway Exit podcast. We're going to be talking about that podcast and the six episodes uh, in that series. Uh, it's a good one, but it is a long one. So let's get right to it with Andrew. Andrew Bowen, welcome to the Active Towns podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks. Happy to be here. <laughs> hey, uh, one of the things I love having my, my guests do is just give a, a real quick uh, introduction to themselves. So uh, what's your uh, you know 30 second elevator pitch of who Andrew is? Okay, cool. Well, um, I'm a journalist. I live in San Diego. I work for the local public radio station here, KPBS. I originally grew up in uh, California, Northern California. And uh, after I graduated college, I moved to Germany, lived there for six years and worked as a journalist there. It was a very formative experience and really kind of influenced how I see a lot of these issues around cities and transportation and urbanism. And uh, I came to San Diego in 2015. I've done a lot of coverage of um, public transit, of uh, freeways, of transportation infrastructure and policy and the reason I'm here today is to talk about my podcast uh, that just dropped, which is called Freeway Exit. And it's about the past, present and future of San Diego's freeways, but really freeways in general. A lot of the things and the questions that we're asking ourselves here in San Diego around freeways are the same kinds of questions that we're hearing at metro regions across the country. Yeah, yeah. And I'm also a native Californian, uh, fourth generation uh, Southern California, Los Angelino. Uh, but I did uh, spend quite a few uh, years up in in Northern California. I actually grew up on a ranch in, in the shadows of Lake Tahoe and, and, and that oh, area. Oh, nice. So That's a beautiful not, area. not far. Now, what 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 village or what city were you in in uh, the in Northern California? Yeah, I grew up in Santa Rosa, so it's about an hour north <laughs> yeah. of San Francisco. Uh, yeah. Pretty small city. Um, uh, the wine industry is really big there. My dad was a vineyard manager, actually. Oh, wow. um, okay. Yeah. So it's a yeah. um, really beautiful place to grow up. You know, I wouldn't call it quite suburban because it's kind of its own community. It's more like just a, a small city kind of that's yeah. a little bit further outside of the San Francisco metro region. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, yeah, some of the most wonderful wine vineyards up in that area. I, I yeah. have frequented many of them. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The whole Russian river Valley area there and the, the really the historical context of like Sonoma too. I mean, that's like mm -hmm. the birthplace of uh, California. Many people don't realize that history of, of the, the actual city of Sonoma too. So good stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of really interesting history in Santa Rosa where I grew up, you know, it was hit by the 1906 earthquake that really uh, hit San Francisco really hard, but it sort of in terms of scale, you know, relative to the city's size, even more devastated by it. So, you know, there, there's a lot of, there's a kind of a parallel history with like how the buildings look and when they were rebuilt and our downtown development, everything there. Yeah. And earthquakes will come back, I'm sure, in another <laughs> part of this conversation. Uh, but Definitely. tell me briefly about uh, where you were in Germany, because I just got back from Germany. I was in Leipzig. Uh, where were you at? Uh, so my first three years that I lived there, I was living in Cologne and working in Bonn, which is a city just to the south of it. Right. Uh, I worked for Deutsche Welle, the international public broadcaster. Uh, okay. So I was working for their English department, covering news in Germany and Europe at large. And then uh, after three years in Cologne, I moved to Berlin and I spent the, the rest of the time there. So it was uh -huh. a, yeah, two really, really excellent cities and, and kind of different uh, sides of, well, geographically different sides of Germany, but also very yeah. different feels in terms of the city. G Berlin has a lot more expats. 
It's much more international. Cologne has a very strong identity of, of what it is. There's a lot of history that's very particular to Cologne. They have their own dialect, you know. Um, so it, it was a really cool kind of time to see two different uh, cities in, in Germany and, and see the differences between them. Yeah, yeah. And I have been able to spend time in both of those cities and, and obviously most recently in, in Berlin when I was in Leipzig. Uh, and uh, have you been to Berlin recently? I was actually just there last summer. Yeah. In okay. uh, June. Yeah. yeah. It was really fascinating for me. Uh, I actually rode my bike from the airport. Uh, <laughs> I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all the way into Berlin to document yeah. that for, for the channel here. And uh, uh, it was interesting to see the, the different approach to the cycle network and dealing with the, the roads and the streets and the highways and, and all of that. And uh, it, once you got into the city proper, the city center, uh, really it's some extraordinary steps being taken there in Berlin to improve the the, the walkability and the bikeability uh, in the city. So that was really kind of cool to see that. Yeah, I mean, it's they, there's been a lot of change even since I left there in 2015. Yeah. Um, new bike lanes coming online. I mean, it was a very bikeable and walkable and transit friendly city when I lived there, but. Um, they've, they've taken things even further and yeah, it's, it's, a it's interesting to see how the debate plays out there in a, in a city that's already so much less car dependent than San Diego, where I live now, sure. but still hearing some of the resistance from folks who want to maintain their personal automobiles in the city and, you know, keep that access. If there was this, um, I don't know if it's happened already, but some, you know, discussion of creating a car free zone in the center of, of Berlin and, yeah. You know what that would mean for people who currently have cars and continue to drive there. Well, one of the things that, that uh, I think we'll get to when we start talking about car culture, too, is the fact that so much of the German uh, economy is still centered around building cars. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting, somewhat ironic, you know, uh, fact that a lot of the, the countries you know, economy is built on automobiles. And at the same time, uh, in other, you know, in these pockets or in these cities, there is so much less need to actually use a car compared to American cities and certainly Southern California. Yeah. Yeah. And for you personally, when you were over there, uh, were you uh, zipping around on the Autobahn and driving everywhere? Or were you uh, getting <laughs> no. around... You know, in six years of living there, I never once got behind the wheel of a car. Oh, um, okay. I I did have a bike pretty much the whole time that I was there. Mostly I walked and used transit, though. And sometimes I would bike to the, you know, if the uh, U-Bahn station was a little bit too far to walk or if I was running late, to you know, to get to work, I'd bike to the U-Bahn station, lock my bike yeah. up there. Um, I, I really lucked out and never had my bike stolen or, you know, any. Yeah. Uh, actually, no, that's a lie. I did lose my front wheel once. Um, okay. <laughs> but... <laughs> But yeah, no, it was, uh, I think like the, the times that there was maybe once or twice when I uh, needed a friend to help me move and I was, you know, they rented a car or they, I, you know, uh, had a car available that um, helped me out with that. But um, it was, it was much more of a hassle and a pain to try and figure out how to drive there than how to yeah. just rely on everything else. So I suspect that this is part of your story then, is that, uh, you know, after spending that time over there and having, uh, you know, that awareness of transportation issues and mobility issues, and then you, you find yourself in San Diego and re-immersed in uh, American style car culture and the freeway culture in particular in uh, Southern California and particularly in San Diego, uh, that was a little bit of a culture shock of its own. Yeah, reverse culture shock, you could call it. I mean, I, uh, you know, got off the plane, I flew into LAX and then drove down from there because it was cheaper to fly into the big airport. But yeah, I remember, you know, renting a car and thinking like, I guess this is my life now, you know, um, <laughs> and I still mourn like the, the type of lifestyle that I was able to lead there, just not needing a car for my daily uh, transportation needs. But yeah, it, it, it's, it definitely gave me a, a different perspective. Um, and the other thing that happened right around when I arrived in San Diego is that the city council adopted its climate action plan. This was in October 2015, and it basically set out these very 
uh, strict quantified goals for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Our largest source here in San Diego of greenhouse gas emissions is from transportation, cars and trucks. And so uh, the strategy for um, cutting emissions in half by 2035, and uh, we've actually upped that goal now since then, um, but the, the strategy largely depended on shifting people's daily commutes away from cars and toward biking, walking, and public transit. Um, there's really no solving the climate issue without also addressing the car issue. And so I got here, you know, one month later, I see the city adopt this extraordinarily ambitious plan to uh, get more people into transit and, and biking and walking. And I had just come from this country where that was the norm. And I was thinking, this is awesome. Like I'm going to be able to cover this, uh, you know, moment where the city is in transition and, you know, that they've set all of these goals and they've made these promises and, and it's going to be great. And what I very quickly learned was that it's a lot easier to adopt goals than to actually reach them. <laughs> and what? really, I, yeah, crazy. But there was a, a real reluctance on the part of our elected officials to be honest with the public about what those goals that they had already adopted would mean for people's daily lives. You know, people are very much wedded to their cars here. And it, I think for some people, they like it and they want it to stay that way. And for other people, it's just kind of how they've, it's the culture and the society that they've inherited. And it's not something that maybe they've even thought about all that much, or they've thought about, maybe they've been to cities that are less car dependent and, you know, see uh, what kinds of, you know, uh, health benefits and quality of life benefits that that can bring. But they just haven't gotten to a place in their own minds where they can see San Diego getting to that same place. There's, it, it, the the transformation that the city has to make if it's actually going to meet its climate goals is just so, so, so dramatic. And I think right now we're suffering from a lack of imagination. And that's one of the things that I wanted to kind of spark with this podcast is getting people to to at least imagine a future where things are different, even if they don't see it you know, five or 10 years away, start thinking about what that, what they want that future to look like and, and what will need to change in order for it to happen. And, and also think about what they'd be willing to sacrifice. You know, if you take a, a lane of, of parking on a boulevard and convert it into a bike lane, or you take away a travel lane away from cars and turn it into a bus lane, uh, you know, people might, it, it might add five or 10 minutes to somebody's drive to and from uh, a place, or, you know, it might be a little bit more difficult to find a parking spot. But, uh, you know, the, the, those things are, those things, like, we have to, we have to have an honest conversation with ourselves about what we are willing to sacrifice and what, uh, you know, conveniences and um, uh, comforts, uh, you know, in the 21st century are just going to go away, whether we like it or not. I mean, the, the, the climate crisis is really uh, bearing down on us, uh, staring us in the face right now, especially, you know, with all of the wildfires in Canada and the smoke um, affecting the eastern United States. You know, uh, San Diego and Southern California went through that in 2020. And it was, uh, you get a real apocalyptic feel looking out at the orange sky. And you know, the, these, these, the, the problem is going to be affecting us whether we like it or not. And we can't just keep avoiding this conversation about, you know, the, the, the link and the nexus between cars and freeways and, you know, our climate future. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it, it harkens back in, in the, the, the name freeway, of course, and since we do have a, a, an international audience here, what we're really talking about here are these massive highways, multiple lanes, and uh, they're, they're called freeways because they're not tolled. If it was a tollway, it would be called a tollway. You know, it's, just, it's, it's an expressway. And yeah. so that's the, the vernacular that, we're, that we ended up using here in the United States was we ended up calling them freeways. Um, and... There, there's some significance to the fact that they're free <laughs> and there's some significance to the fact that the way that they got built out, it, it kind of harkens back to uh, uh, a, a comment or a phrase that Don Shoup uses, uh, Professor uh, Donald Shoup up in uh, at UCLA about free parking. 
he likes to say that free parking is like a fertility drug for, for, for cars. It just creates mm-hmm. more cars. And that's the same thing that happens with freeways and more freeway miles and the induced demand of building more lanes. It, it makes it that much more attractive. It's like this addiction of, oh, well, this makes it really easy. So more, more traffic comes. And so that's one of the, the, the main challenges, of course, for a place like San Diego in Southern California and many other cities around the globe is that when we build out these expressways, when we build out these freeways and we have all this capacity there, it just encourages more people to drive. I, I got a chuckle out of uh, one of your episodes. I think it was the very first episode and really talking about the very first freeways and the fact that that very first freeway that got built in San Diego, no sooner than it was built and it was like, clogged because everybody wanted to check it out. <laughs> it was hilarious. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, if you could pull up the photo, like, you yeah, know, let's we, pull this uh, up. The, the very beginning of episode one starts. As, so what we're looking at now is Balboa Park. This is kind of like San Diego's version of Central Park. It's the largest, you know, urban park uh, in the city. And uh, you can see two freeways, actually, that go through it. There's the one that starts on the left side of the screen, kind of makes an S-curve. That's I-5. It goes through downtown, then curves back down south. So that kind of cut off the southern edge of Balboa Park. And then you also have the 163, which uh, is uh, kind of the western uh, quarter of the park. Is kind of uh, it, it divides the western quarter from the the eastern three quarters. Um, so the 163 is that freeway that goes north south here. It's in the city charter that any time you dedicate a use in in Balboa Park to something that is not park land. Uh, there has to be a public vote. So in 1941, the State Division of Highways was um, starting to plan out, you know, this future where, you know, lots of people were uh, buying cars and there was a, 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 a belief in, you know, among our, our leaders that the automobile was the future. And so um, they wanted to build this freeway through Balboa Park. There used to be a, a two lane road there, um, but they wanted to build it into a true uh, highway. So there was this vote in 1941 uh, about whether or not to dedicate this parkland to uh, the city's first highway, and it passed with 89% of the vote. So that kind of, I think, speaks to this um, mentality that folks at the time were, uh, you know, in, which is that the the car and the automobile and the, the highways are our future. This is how we're going to be getting around. And people were even willing to give up, you know, what we call our crown jewel of Balboa Park um, in service to that future. So, uh, yeah, that it was, it took a while to build. They, uh, in 1948, it finally opened. They had this procession down the highway, you know, celebrating, uh, the, the, this brand new piece of infrastructure. And then once they opened up the, the on-ramps, uh, it was just flooded with cars and they were caught in gridlock. It's very ironic, you know, that as soon as the first freeway opens, we already have congestion. Yeah. And, and that's very, I think, relevant too, to, to talk about because um, the vision that we were, were fed and, and, and continued to that narrative that continued to sort of get put out there. Uh, you, you mentioned, you know, Walt Disney and, and you know, the, the history of how the automobile and the future was, was painted. They never talk about the reality of, oh, yeah, pollution, uh, displacement of people, uh, (laughs) of gridlock. You know, none of those things get mentioned. It's just the, oh, the wide open roads and going through beautiful parklands. Yeah, that's what you get. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we start episode two with this video uh, from. Uh, that it's a show that aired in the fifties called Disneyland. This before yeah. Disneyland actually opened. And, uh, it, the, the name of this uh, episode was magic highway USA. So they are yeah. basically asked all of these transportation engineers and, you know, people who were involved in the planning of the freeway network in, in the United States, what do you think the freeways will look like in, yeah. you know, uh, the, in the next generation when our kids and grandkids are growing up? And there are these, you know, very Jetson style images of uh, tubular highways going underneath the ocean and uh, and, you know, air conditioned tubular highways through the desert. 
I, I found that particularly funny because air conditioning was pretty standard in automobiles by the 50s. Uh, so it's not enough that we have air conditioning inside the cars. We also need it outside the cars for, <laughs> I don't know why, uh, but there was just, you know, the, 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 there was a real, I mean, it's, we, we laugh at it now, you know, thinking yeah. how, how on earth could these people have gotten it so wrong? Um, but there was this real optimism at, at right. that time that, um, you know, that, uh, freeways and, and cars could really carry us into the future. And there's nothing that we can't accomplish. We had just won World War II. We, you know, the, the economy was going gangbusters. People were owning homes in greater numbers, owning cars in greater numbers. And there was just this real sense of, of pride in, in, in the progress that all of this infrastructure uh, would bring. I actually have, I got, I went to the archives for the Caltrans uh, local district. That's the state transportation department for California. And they found this pamphlet for me. It's called Freeway Facts. Mm -hmm. And these pamphlets were given out to people at public hearings where they would be discussing the routing of a particular freeway. So we're going to put yeah. it here. And, you know, they had to hold a public hearing. It was very much kind of checking a box. Um, yeah. But some of the things that they discuss in here, you know, they have a Q&A section at the end. And and one of the things, uh, you know, that the questions that they uh, answer is, um, what will the freeway do to our community? Will it cut it in two? And uh, the answer, they say, is heavy traffic on ordinary streets is a barrier. Experience shows that freeways actually unite communities by eliminating congestion and permitting traffic to flow freely across town at strategically located crossings over or under the freeway and relieving congestion on nearby streets. So, you know, as we were building out this network of freeways, People were sold a bill of goods, you know, that this infrastructure was going to solve their problems. It was going to give them an easy commute and they were going to be, you know, this idea of congestion that we experienced on local streets where you have crosswalks and, and conflict points and, you know, intersections and everything. All of that was going to be gone and we're going to be able to drive wherever we want as fast as we want. And, you know, uh, it's going to be great. Um, and. So, you know, we, we could, I'm sure we'll have more to talk about this, but it's, yeah, it was, it was interesting going back in time and, and really listening to how our country was talking about the freeway in this moment where there was just a complete massive blind spot to all of the negative externalities that these decisions would have on people. And, you know, like you mentioned, noise, fumes, division, you know, people were sold this bill of goods that was ultimately just based on uh, false information. Yeah. And as far as, uh, you know, freeways go, uh, this particular freeway, the 163, I, I remember this vividly from my time uh, in San Diego. I For a very short period of time, I had a uh, shared an apartment with my, my sister down in Carlsbad, and I used to surf down there a lot. But yeah. uh, as far as freeways go, I mean, th this is one of the most beautiful uh, roadways as far as roadways go, just because of the setting. And you can see that it has some very, very interesting architectural uh, features to it. And it really is. It, it's it's an unfortunate that it's this roadway, that, you know, high speed roadway that cuts through the Crown Jewel, a park. Um, but at the same, you know, on the flip side, you tell the story of, of somebody who remembers, you know, the early years of, of experiencing this roadway and more importantly, starts to kindle like this thought and this image of, well, what if dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. So, so, you know, here you have the view of the, uh, traffic going northward that, that bridge or sorry, this, I believe this is southbound actually. Yeah, um, I think so. Uh, the, uh, you know, cars driving under the Cabrillo Bridge. So Balboa Park was established in the, the 19th century, but it really kind of most of the amenities, the museums, the, um, you know, different uh, historic buildings that are that were built there uh, came in 1914 and 1915 when the mm -hmm. uh, San Diego hosted the Panama California World Exposition. It's one of those world fairs that they were doing at the time. Yeah. And so this bridge was built there. It's an absolutely gorgeous view and and it's kind of marred by, you know, the cars. So yeah. this image oh. here that we see it's like yeah, that, oh, that's all right. You, you call that marred? You call that marred? I mean that's well, that's wonder. That's beautiful. Oh, oh, you mean uh, this could happen. <laughs> 
That's right. So so there's this uh, Twitter account called Better Streets AI, and they take yes. these images of, of roads and, and freeways and uh, use AI image generation to uh, imagine what that street would look like if there were no cars on it. So this is an image of uh, the ones, the same, uh, you know, a frame of the 163 freeway going south. And on the left side, you have uh, somebody on a bike and there's this little stream and a line of flowers and everything. And it kind of went viral. And you know, it definitely started people, uh, you know, some some people thinking about what it is that we lost when we dedicated all of this parkland to a, a freeway. Um, but the 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 gentleman that, that you're talking about who appears in episode one, his name's Brer Marsh. He's a, an architect here. He actually was able to sneak onto the freeway when it was closed for maintenance in 2014. So, um, you know, there were no cars on it. He kind of, you know, sneaks through these barriers that, that have been set up to keep people off the freeway. And just kind of stood there and listened to the birds chirping and the you know the smells and and listening to the silence and everything and it was it planted a seed in his mind that really got him thinking over over a longer period of time of you know what if we could take back this space and and actually uh, reimagine this freeway that you know we didn't decide that it should get built here this is just something that we inherited from a, a past generation. And so he's, you know, he's basically been trying, you know, talking to friends, trying to get people to at least imagine this this type of future where maybe someday um, we will have have improved our public transit system, will have made more walkable and bikeable streets, and and uh, you know this piece of infrastructure that currently we dedicate to traffic and you know getting people in and out uh, or through the park, but not to it. Maybe someday we could take that space back and and create something beautiful that people would really love. Yeah. I didn't realize that this was a Better Streets AI. I did have Zach it on uh, to talk about uh, uh, the fact that you, doing these uh, imaging, you know, the, the the AI images really, you know, kind of helps people reimagine what the, these spaces could be. So, you know, you take this and you turn in and say, oh, but it could be this. It's like, oh, wow. Yeah, I, I get that. And they do go viral, which is really, really nice to see because it, it becomes very refreshing to see the opportunity of, you know, hey, let's let's imagine that it, it doesn't have to just be this paved over landscape of motordom. It could be something that, you know, harkens back to maybe some of the original visions of, of beauty, uh, you know, in that particular area. And like you said, you know, most, you know, Balboa Park, most of that stuff was in place, you know, 100 years ago. So, yeah, it's incredibly, right. yeah. incredibly important. Yeah. So, so these are some images of, of what the park looked like or what that canyon looked like before the freeway was built. So yeah. as I mentioned, there was a, a, a um, very rudimentary, it might have been even unpaved, uh, road on, on the side there. But the rest of the canyon was just uh, greenery, vegetation, and there was this lily pond uh, right underneath the Cabrillo Bridge that provided a really beautiful reflection of the, of the bridge and the sky and everything. And this was, you know, created, the, the lake was man-made, but it was a really beautiful kind of setting. And if you go there now, you know, you hear the noise from the traffic uh, and and it's just not quite as peaceful. But one of the things that these images are, I think they definitely spark people's imagination, but seeing it in real life uh, without cars is something, it's just a different level. Yeah. And um, if I don't know if you could pull up the video that um, there's a clip that I have, um, and hopefully we can hear the sound also, but that this the, the clip is from episode six and it's... Um, this guy, Brer Marsh, the architect, who is talking about uh, temporary closures of freeways mm -hmm. and basically how you don't have to shut a freeway down, totally decommission it uh, right away. You can have yeah. a temporary closure where it's shut down for just a couple of hours, maybe a day, have an event, you know, make an event out of it and, and get people to see and experience this space on a temporary basis in a way that they never have before. Um, yeah. So this video here is is something that uh, it, they did this on a different freeway in uh, the 15. Um, and you can go ahead and play it if you if you can. It's uh, the sound isn't really all that important, but um, you know people are biking on the freeway. There's this you know exit sign above there. Um, kids are walking and riding scooters. There were families there, you know, picking up trash, and it was just a really beautiful moment where and there's me you know with my recorder uh, uh gathering some tape 
it's a beautiful moment to witness all of these people who have never experienced a freeway like this before. And, yeah. and we just did this. This is it, right? What we've yeah. given up. And through that feeling that they have ownership over it and that they can perhaps have a little more control over that part of their environment, which has been reallocated to some other use, right? Traffic. Yeah, I, I think it, it's so incredibly important for us to be able to have these moments to experience our streets, our street spaces, even freeways, even highways, uh, without that constant noise. And and I, I launched my podcast in the the lockdown during the during the pandemic, and I would be bringing people in from around the globe, and and it, it seemed like every single episode there was some comment about how amazing it was to have a uh, an opportunity to experience the community to commu- uh, experience the streets without the automobile noise and so i i think you're you're absolutely right i mean the, those those are golden moments when you do have that opportunity to experience those highways those streets those spaces and not have that constant automobile noise where you can actually hear people talking and uh, and birds chirping. Yeah, I mean, there was this moment when I was on the 15 during that temporary closure and it, it was done, it wasn't sort of just to close the freeway that Caltrans was, uh, the state transportation department was doing some maintenance on the other half of the freeway, but they, they opened up the half that wasn't under maintenance for people to walk on and bike on. And there was this moment where I heard these birds chirping and you know, it was just like, you don't get to experience, and San Diego has, I think, a really beautiful um, union between natural settings and urban settings. We've got a lot of canyons where there was never any ability to develop them. Some of them were turned into freeways, actually, uh, but the canyons that were preserved, uh, you know, they're little these little pockets of nature, and sometimes they go right up to the freeway. But, um, you know, we, we have these uh, these pockets of nature where we can experience, you know, the 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 uh, the flora and the fauna and um, see you know what our city used to be before it was uh, really turned into a car city and um, and and the noise from freeways drowns all of that out and and you know having just a, a brief moment where you get to experience it in a different way I think. Um, starts to change people's minds. I, I saw that. You know, I saw there were a lot of staffers from the the state transportation department uh, who were at this uh, uh, freeway closure, and they were seeing all of these people. You know, uh, totally uh, um, amazed by by uh, the ability to experience this space in a completely different context. And uh, they saw how much people loved it, and they're they're aware of how much their infrastructure has impacted people's lives and really divided communities and and displaced people and left people with, you know, uh, uh, air pollution and noise. And, and I think that they see these sort of temporary closures as a way to maybe engage the community in a more positive way and um, help people feel like they have ownership over this space. I mean, it's public land, you know, this is land owned by the government, which, you know, we, the people ultimately are, the government serves at our uh, our pleasure. And so I think people see this as like uh, a space that somebody else that belongs to somebody else, but it is actually ours and, and we can decide what we want to do with it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and we, we've both sort of mentioned that, you know, these highways, these freeways were, were built right through the hearts of neighborhoods and had profound impacts and continue to have profound impacts on the health and well-being. And in several of your episodes, you, you highlight a, a couple of different themes. One, you highlight the themes of uh, freeways that didn't come to into fruition, but you also highlighted, uh, you know, some of the, the negative externalities that are that are happening. Uh, I think this is a, a, an elementary school. What's the story behind this one? Yeah, so this this photo is of a bunch of elementary school kids. It's a large photograph with a wide angle. Um, they're all in rainbow colors, and they're uh, standing together in a, the shape of a heart. So this is Cesar Chavez Elementary School. It's in a neighborhood called Southcrest. And in the late 60s, uh, the city of San Diego and the state division of highways uh, signed a, an agreement to 
put a freeway through this neighborhood. Uh, there were parts of the city that were developing on the east, and they wanted a, a fast freeway connection to get those new suburban-style neighborhoods into downtown. So uh, they had planned for a freeway to go through this neighborhood. And the, the following, the year after that, I think it was actually 1968, the following year, this district got its, uh, San Diego got its first black city council member. His name was Leon Williams. And he basically started organizing this community and, uh, you know, uh, getting people, trying to empower people to, you know, get them to think, hey, the, the state has this plan, the city has this plan, but you, uh, this is me interviewing Leon Williams that um, he's 100 years old now. Th this government is uh, serves at your pleasure and you have a say over what happens here. And so that started this very long campaign. It was part of the, the freeway revolts, a very national movement uh, that was kind of a backlash against the boom of freeway building that started in the 50s. So San Diego's own freeway revolt was ultimately able to stop this this uh, freeway from from getting built through the neighborhood of Southcrest. And so what happened next was the state had these 66 acres of land, you know, that they had just purchased and and had cleared, torn down all of these buildings. And, you know, they were ordered uh, to sell the land back to the city and the city would then uh, redevelop it. And that elementary school is one of the things that ultimately got built on that land. There are also parks there, uh, quite a bit of housing. Um, there was a, a shopping center with the neighborhood's first grocery store in more than 30 years. You know, and this, this area is, you know, big parts of southeastern San Diego where this freeway would have been built are considered food deserts and there's not a lot of access to fresh and healthy food. And, and now that neighborhood has that amenity and it's all because, you know, that that freeway was not built. Yeah. And uh, this is an image of uh, of a, an older uh, a woman in, in front of her door. Is this uh, in the same that same yeah. neighborhood in Crestview? This is actually no. So this is um, Adriana Gianturco, uh, or Adriana Saltenstall is now her her uh, name that she uses. But she was the first woman to ever lead Caltrans, the State Department oh, of wow. Transportation. Okay. Uh, yeah. She was appointed by our governor, Jerry Brown, in the 70s, and she came in at a time when there was a lot of disruption to this whole uh, um, freeway industrial complex, you could call it. So the, the federal government, starting in the 50s, had just been giving states huge subsidies to build freeways. And by the 70s, that money was starting to disappear, and all of the subsidies that we had counted on from the federal government were drying up. So that left this system that we still had to maintain with, you know, a huge shortfall. So she was given the task of trying to figure out how do we get our highway program in a financially sound position so that we can at least maintain our freeways. And that should be our first priority is maintaining what we've already built. And then if we have some extra money left over, then we can talk about building more freeways or widening the ones that we have. So she came in in the mid 70s, you know, faced a lot of, of opposition from the contractors that were getting all the money to build these freeways, the labor unions that were hired to actually do the work, the developers that were building the suburbs that, that you know, uh, provided huge amounts of profit, uh, you know, that were only uh, developable because there were freeways that would connect them to the actual cities and job centers. And so I, I found her, you know, in, in Sacramento. She's uh, lived a, a very private life for the last couple decades, but, you know, was, was uh really at the center of this debate over freeways in the 1970s and 80s and was actually able to make some progress and really set Caltrans on a different path where they started to think more about transportation and mobility rather than just highways and cars. And so, you know, she got them to start funding more public transit, uh, more um, bike infrastructure, and just started trying to, at least trying, you know, it's been a, it's a journey, it's still ongoing, trying to get that agency to, you know, think about how it can actually maintain, you know, a balanced budget with uh, maintaining all of the infrastructure that we have, which right now is, is in pretty bad shape, frankly. There's a lot of repair work that needs to be done on the freeways. And, you know, that, that money has to come from somewhere. Yeah. 
And uh, that brings us around to, to also, we had promised that we would talk a little bit about uh, the earthquakes. So in 1989, mm. we obviously had another uh, very big uh, earthquake uh, in the Bay Area and in San Francisco. And of course, the, the Nimitz Freeway came down. Yeah. So so it's kind of a, a um, so the Nimitz Freeway was in Oakland in the east of San Francisco. That freeway pretty much totally collapsed during this right. earthquake. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The Embarcadero Freeway didn't totally collapse, but it was very severely damaged. And what they ended up doing with the Nimitz for you, it was just rerouting it. So they, right. they didn't really actually remove any freeway miles from the network. But what happened with the Embarcadero Freeway was, you know, the city of San Francisco is just forced into this conversation by a natural disaster right. to decide, is this freeway worth keeping? Are we willing to spend hundreds, I don't know exactly how much, I, so I shouldn't speculate, but are we, what in today's dollars, it would probably be hundreds of millions of dollars to rebuild this freeway to a high, higher seismic standard. So, you know, the next earthquake comes along and it's able to withstand uh, that pressure. Um, or are we willing to say, no, this freeway is not worth building. Let's just tear it down and figure out something else to do with all of this land. And so the, the city, after a very uh, intense political debate uh, and, and a lot of dissent from from residents of the city and also, uh, you know, state transportation officials decided, no, we need to tear this freeway down. And so what we're seeing here is the uh, sort of monument to um, what the freeway, uh, the, you know, the freeway that used to be. And if you go there now to, to the Embarcadero in San Francisco, it's a thriving tourist destination. There are beautiful panoramic views of uh, San Francisco Bay and, and the bridges across the bay and, and uh, different islands in the bay and, you know, public art. Uh, there's uh, bike lanes and a light rail line. And this is what the city chose to, to put in place of a freeway. And, you know, it's, it's been a, a success, I think, beyond what anyone anticipated at the time that, you know, the the city would be able to remove this freeway from the network. There wouldn't be total traffic chaos that people would figure out still how to get from point A to point B. And, uh, you know, you can build something uh, really beautiful in the in place of the freeway, which was a real blight on the on the neighborhood, you know, uh, fumes, noise. Uh, it was there was crime. You know, it was just a really seedy place to be. And now it's it's a real destination. Yeah. And, and to be clear, I mean, this I'll zoom in on this. It was a double decker freeway. So when we say it collapsed, just like the Nimitz across the bay there, um, these were double decker things that just they collapsed upon themselves during the earthquake. And it was it was a controversial um, freeway when it was built there on the in the Embarcadero area, because you can see in the background here, that's a pier. This is all waterfront area. I mean, there's no reason that a, a freeway, a highway, an expressway should be built in that area to begin with. And I believe San Francisco is looking at um, making it even more people oriented because you can see in the background here that there are still quite a few lanes of traffic. You had mentioned there, there's bike lanes and there's a, a pedestrian realm, but they're, they're leaning heavily into the fact to make it even more uh, pedestrianized, even more uh, people oriented because what we experienced from, from that example of a natural disaster happening is the magic evaporation of traffic. Because we always assume that there's gonna be massive gridlock and the world's gonna to come to an end. And I can remember all, all the visions of Carmageddon that were gonna happen you know, during the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. And it's like, yeah, it, it doesn't happen. Um, and so when things like this happen, there is this sort of this magic evaporation of, of traffic because humans, you know, make decisions <laughs> and they do practical, pragmatic decisions. If you give them, you know, again, going back to induced demand, you give them open lanes and, 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 and make it easy for people to drive, people will drive. If you make it a little less easy or if circumstances make it a little less easy, they find another way around, which is one yeah. of the key points. Yeah, I mean, this is a concept that we we talk about in in episode five is the inverse of induced demand, which is traffic evaporation. You know, if people are anticipating congestion will be really bad during a certain hour, they will avoid driving in those areas if they can. You know, sometimes there's a short term impact on traffic. Traffic might get worse uh, for a period of time as people are trying to figure out, you know, how do I adjust my own behaviors to this new reality? 
But here we're seeing an image of the central freeway, which a portion of which was also taken down after the earthquake, but most of which still remains in the city today. And there is a movement in San Francisco to uh, finish the job, essentially, of what the earthquake started and uh, remove the rest of the central freeway. And there are you know, lots of ideas of what you, uh, they could do uh, with that space, you know, certainly build housing. San Francisco has a massive housing shortage and it's causing a lot of problems there. Uh, they could build an elevated linear park, you know, keep parts of the freeway in place. One of the interesting things about the Embarcadero Freeway is I went around there and talked to a bunch of tourists and locals and everything. And a lot of people had no idea that there used to be a freeway there because the city did such a good job of getting rid of it. And so here with the central freeway, one of the ideas that some of these advocates are talking about is, you know, maybe keep parts of the freeway in place so that we can remember what happened here and and what this used to be. And, you know, if the project is successful, you know, uh, how much better things are now without the freeway. Yeah. And uh, I, I think this is a good opportunity to bring up and talk a little bit about uh, the Congress for the New Urbanism has a program. Uh, essentially, it's called Freeways Without Futures. And so every couple years, they come out with a, a, a list of, you know, sort of the, the top 10 or whatever it is. I'm not sure what it what, exactly uh, of the Freeways Without Futures and and talk a little like have you know, some, some open dialogue and, and discussions about the fact that, you know, many of these freeways are problematic. Uh, many of them were built, you know, on racist <laughs> premises and through, you know, neighborhoods and many of them aren't even necessary. And so uh, it, it's, it, we have several stories in addition to the, the Embarcadero Freeway uh, around the globe, including, you know, a, a, a massive freeway that was restored to a river in, in Korea. Um, South Korea, yeah. Yeah, in South Korea. And, uh, and of course, recently, um, in the last couple of years, uh, we have seen the return of a canal in Utrecht, and I've documented that uh, several times, uh, that process of, you know, it was once a canal, then they turned it into a, a, a highway, and now it's back to being a canal. So it, it is, it, it almost seems like heresy to, to say, oh, freeways, you're, you're talking about tearing out infrastructure and freeways. And it's like, well, yes, but there's some precedent to it and there's some reason why we, we should do this. And so I will include a link uh, to this uh, episode uh, to this particular page and you can you can scroll down and take a look at it. And and you can see here in the 2023 uh, list, we've got you know several of them, including the notorious Interstate 35, which uh, does exactly what we're talking about here in criticizing is that these freeways were built right through the middle of vibrant downtown areas in many cases. And oftentimes uh, those people who got displaced so that the land, you know, could, you know, be built, you know, could, could be developed as freeways. And you mentioned this earlier, oftentimes those were the underserved populations. Those were uh, the black and brown neighborhoods, the the the, the lower income uh, neighborhoods that, you know, they just ran, you know, they bought up those houses, condemned them and ran the, the freeway through. So there's, there's some unfortunate history uh, that is part of this narrative and you cover it all quite beautifully <laughs> in, in, in your episodes. You also covered uh, uh, the, the concept of capping uh, some of these freeways. And, and that's one of the discussions that's happening in, in Austin. And one of the reasons why I wanted to bring the, the freeways out, out of future and, and, and bring up Austin specifically as an example, because that's one of the debates that's happening is, is saying, well, okay, what if we just, we still expand it, but we bury it and, you know, and put a park on top of it and, and do some stuff like this. But uh, I, I believe TxDOT is saying, well, you can do that, but we're, we're not going to pay for it. You're going to have to come mm -hmm. up with your own money. Right. Well, and that's the real, that, that's, I think, the real challenge with freeway lids. I mean, they're a, a, um, a very elegant way to kind of 
put the freeway out of south, uh, out of sight, out of mind, at least for a very limited space, you know. Um, but uh, and we have a freeway lit park in San Diego. It's uh, in City Heights. I, I didn't um, manage to get a, a photo of that for this, but um, it's a, a very beautiful park in a neighborhood that was divided by a freeway. And, you know, it's a, a, an incredible community asset. Um, and and a, a nice way to mitigate some of the harm that this freeway caused the community. Right. Um, yeah. But there are still, uh, you know, seven or eight blocks of that freeway without lid on it, a, a lid on it that are also causing a lot of problems there. And it's a temporary thing, too, because, you know, at some point in time, the, that freeway, that highway is still is going to open up. And and the the key thing to that is we're not inconveniencing the drivers. It's like the same with in Dallas with Clyde Warren Park. It, you know, there's a wonderful, beautiful open space and, and public realm there, and that's beautiful. Uh, but then, just a few hundred yards down here, it opens up, and then you know all that noise and all that pollution is then being subjected to the the residents. You know, not in that cap area. So mm -hmm. yeah. So this image we're seeing is from uh, where part of the central freeway in San Francisco used to be, and okay. they built a park here. So um, there's a play structure and you know grassy area, and I went there, and uh, it was just a, an incredibly peaceful um, you know space. And this is, I think, one of the the key examples of of how a freeway removal can be successful because. A freeway has, uh, you know, there's lighting problems uh, during the daytime and at night. Uh, yeah. There are certainly noise problems, and those things can breed, uh, they can attract crime. You know, right. uh, you can't hear somebody screaming if there's a freeway right next to you, and, and you know, uh, maybe you can get away with uh, doing some bad stuff. So this neighborhood of Hayes Valley that used to have a freeway running through it has been completely transformed. It used to be yeah. a hotbed for crime, and after the freeway was removed, there were more, uh, you know, local businesses, uh, shops, cafes, and restaurants that started moving in. More housing got built there, uh, and you know, uh, and this park, of course. And it's, uh, you know, sort of the, I think, politically more difficult, or it's a harder sell politically to just say remove the freeway from the, the network and and figure out something else to do with that land. Um, the lids are, I think, a, an easier political answer but also more difficult in a sense because you have to figure out how to pay for them. And many of them are just extraordinarily expensive. There's a program that uh, in the United States, we uh, last year, the year before um, President Biden passed this law to fund increased infrastructure funding. And that uh, law established a program with the Federal Department of Transportation called Reconnecting Communities. And right. this, the, state, the federal government is just giving out money to state governments and local governments to try and repair some of these harms that, that uh, transportation infrastructure caused communities. And some of the projects that are getting money uh, could be freeway lids. Um, freeway lids could be up to a billion dollars, and this program has a billion dollars. So, you know, there's not, it's not really a scalable solution to all of the damage that, that freeways caused in many communities. But, you know, in this case here, uh, a freeway removal provides um, not just a, the elimination of all of those negative externalities on a larger scale, um, but it opens up a lot of new land for a government to decide what to do with. And, you know, uh, once you get people, I think, thinking and talking about um, what opportunities a freeway removal could have, you know, sometimes their minds uh, might be a little bit more open to it and, you know, thinking, well, sure, I, uh, I wish my neighborhood had a park or I wish my neighborhood had more affordable housing, you know, so um, if, if I could say goodbye to this freeway and get something else that I really want in exchange, you know, maybe that could change somebody's mind. Yeah. So from this... To this. <laughs> right. And for, for the audio only audience, we're just flipping through these two images of uh, the central uh, freeway and the portion that's still up and the fact that it's just, you know, it's it's an overpass area of the freeway. There is somebody on a scooter on in a bike lane uh, down below it, uh, but it is just this paved over landscape. I like to call it a hellscape versus a park, a playground fountains and, and other wonderful things happening here, but more importantly, housing and vibrancy and vitality happening. And so you're, you're starting to like, again, stitch back together a, a community. And, uh, and, and this was the, 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 the video clip that we had played earlier. And I think that 
it's it's probably a good point in time for for us to to button this up and and give you a chance to really cover anything that we haven't yet already mentioned uh, about the series. I think it's just, it's beautifully done. Uh, you've done a wonderful job. You're clearly a professional at, at, at doing this whole journalist thing. Uh, and uh, it, it, the, the, the stories, the story arc is fantastic, but this is a lot of work. This is, you know, to be able to do this. What's the future of, of, of the series? Um, there, it's a six part series now. This was season one. It's wrapped up. People can binge listen to it at this point in time. Uh, so why don't you just kind of give us an idea as to uh, what the future of uh, freeway exit is going to be? Yeah. So I'm, you know, uh, back to my regular reporting job at KPBS now that this podcast or the first six episodes have been wrapped up. Just today, I'm actually covering a, a bus driver strike and, and how our local transit agency is going to be dealing with that. So, you know, I'm going to be basically balancing all of those daily reporting uh, duties with trying to keep the podcast alive and maybe switching up the format a bit. You know, we these are all, um, you know, as you mentioned, like pretty highly produced with a narrative arc. And, and I have a lot of interviews that I did for this podcast that didn't make it into any episodes. So I'm going to be digging into some of those, uh, some of that tape that was just left on the cutting room floor and repackaging them. You know, I interviewed quite a few elected officials and uh, public official or government officials in San Diego and the region um, who said some pretty interesting and provocative things about this, uh, this whole idea. And so you know, we'll be keeping the podcast feed alive. Definitely. I hope folks will hit that follow button. You know, if you like it, give me a five star ratings and tell your friends about it so that more people can hear about it. And it's it's been very well received so far. So I, I've been really happy with it. And this question of, of the future of our freeways is very much of the moment. We in San Diego are developing our our next regional transportation plan where we're kind of laying out all of the projects and policies in the next uh, 15, 20 years that will get us to our goal of net zero greenhouse gas emissions. And the reality is beginning to sink in that every time we widen a freeway, we can't just assume that it won't increase drive, dr uh, driving and traffic will get better and stay that way. It's actually going to be setting us back in terms of our, our climate goals. And so, you know, our, our elected officials are being kind of forced to confront some very uncomfortable truths about this network that was built. And, and you know, it, it's causing a lot of stir here politically. There are a lot of people who are really, they just want the government to keep building freeways and keep widening them, kind of based on this uh, false understanding of that, how that might, you know, actually solve their problems when we we know it won't, unfortunately. Um, so, yeah, I'll be, I'll be, you know, keeping the podcast feed alive and fresh and people can follow me on Twitter at AC Bowen. And I, you know, I tweet about a lot of these daily kind of debates that we have in San Diego and, you know, appreciate uh, also if folks are able to donate to KPBS. We're a nonprofit news organization and, and we are able to do this work thanks to you know, the generosity of our donors. Yeah. And uh, one of the interviews that you, you had uh, in, in the series was uh, uh, my good friend and fo uh, fellow former uh, guest here on the podcast uh, in, in uh, Bruce Appleyard, uh, Professor Appleyard. And of course, he uh, he rides his bike. He tries to ride his bike uh, to the San Diego State University. And, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about the fact that you know, we understand that there's going to be this this balance in a place uh, where automobiles are, are, are going to be around for a while. They're not just going to magically go away. And we know that a, a, a large number of potential trips that could be shifted over to um, active modes, the bicycle, especially now with uh, the, the advent of and really the proliferation of electric assist bikes, you know, it's that magical sort of uh, distance and, and what better place in terms of climate than San Diego to be able to act to have, you know, partake in active mobility. Um, so, you know, in that sort of realm of, you know, five, six miles or less, those are a lot of trips that can be off shifted over. And, uh, and and so I think there's a great deal of opportunity for all of us and for cities to be able to really think about strategically. It's like, OK, you know, there's going to be a place for the automobile. There's going to be a place for transit. 
And, you know, where's, what's this balance going to be, but how many of those trips, daily trips that are being made are in that sweet spot of being able to off shift towards, uh, an active mobility mode, like on an electric assist bike, uh, or, or acoustic bike too, you might be fine if you're not having to do a bunch of hills and that kind of fun stuff. Do you get the sense that, that that's part of your, uh, the, the, the environment there in San Diego is also, you know, starting to, to, to grapple with those, uh, discussions because uh, having spent some time in, you know, in that area and, and a lot of time in California, we would use the freeway when the freeway, you know, served us well and it was inconvenient for us. But, you know, you know, oftentimes if it's, if it's not convenient, we, you know, we would take an all, a different route. Here in Austin, I almost never get on one of the freeways because I know that getting on my bike is the best way of getting around. Like I've got a network that I can lean into. So do you get that sense that San Diego is, is having that discussion in, 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 as well as sort of questioning the, the freeway network? Yes. I mean, it's it's a city in transition right now. And I think we're witnessing some of the pain of that transition. You know, a lot of folks are really unhappy with the bike lanes that the city has built and um, are letting our elected officials know about it. And so I think right now we're seeing a, a bit of a pullback on, on some of the uh, more ambitious transportation policies and projects that that our government has been pursuing over the last couple of years. But, you know, the, the things are changing. I mean, the, the, uh, the pandemic definitely got folks interested in, in trying new ways to get around. Um, we're also, you know, kind of transitioning from a very suburban style city with single family, neighbor, single family home neighborhoods in the, you know, actual urban environments, um, transitioning from that model of, of land use into something where uh, there are more apartment and condo buildings and, and folks can, you know, when there's a greater density of people, uh, that's able to support both the infrastructure and businesses so that people could maybe walk to the grocery store instead of driving or take a bike to a grocery store. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking about it. We're thinking about it. You know, it, it's by no means a consensus here. And I think that what's really been missing from the conversation from my perspective is just an honesty with the skeptics of this transition that, yeah, maybe you will drive, uh, maybe you will have to, you know, add another five or 10 or 15 minutes to somewhere, you know, if you're trying to get somewhere by car, because, you know, we have invested all of our energy and time into making things as easy as possible for drivers at the detriment of all other types of, of mobility. And so, yeah, you know, we're. I, I think I'd like to see, and what I'm trying to start with this podcast and with my reporting in San Diego is um, trying to get people to think about uh, that word of sacrifice. That you know, maybe uh, you won't bike. Maybe you know, you're because you're not able to, or because of where you live, or you know, some other factor. You're not personally benefiting from this infrastructure, but you know, there are real benefits to safety and to uh, greenhouse gas emissions that. Uh, we can't just pretend don't exist. And if you're, if you know, if we're willing to to uh, give up some conveniences and, and and do it in in a more sort of orderly way right now, while we still have a little bit of time before the climate catastrophe really you know makes things hard for us, then maybe we can create a better future for our kids and grandkids. Yeah, and kids and grandkids is what it's really all about too. Because I, I I talk about this all the time is that. If you're going to encourage people to partake in active mobility and start walking and biking to more meaningful destinations, it has to be truly an all ages and abilities uh, type of, of network and facilities. Um, it's it's BS if you think that people who aren't confident, sporty riders are going to take the lane. You know, the whole vehicular cyclist movement that's really still strong in San Diego has, has got to die. It's just, it's a distraction and you need to be able to, you know, kind of follow the the lessons from the European, you know, cities that we had mentioned earlier, including, you know, many of the cities in Germany. Uh, Munster is a, is a great example of, you know, cities that have built out a good network. And then in addition to, you know, 
Copenhagen and also in, in the Netherlands, we know what works, and that is building an all ages and abilities network of active mobility facilities. And that helps encourage people to make more daily trips, especially in that sweet spot, that zone of five miles, six miles or less. And that's the magic thing. That's what we have to be able to do. Yeah, I think that one challenge that's somewhat unique or, you know, different about San Diego compared to a European city is that we are extremely spread out. You know, this the city was built around the car. And so we have very low density, spread out neighborhoods. And so, it, you know, t- uh, building a network of, of protected bike lanes that that would serve, you know, a, a six year old or eight year old uh, in the same way that they would serve a 45 year old, you know, physically fit uh, um, person that requires taking a lot of space away from cars and it's you know the the and it requires a real commitment to sticking to that vision of a complete network that connects the entire city right now what we've seen is there are little strips of bike lanes here and then there's another one there and then it disappears and then you have to you know uh, share a lane with cars for a while in some really dangerous environments and so you know because san diego has so much farther to go than a lot of the other cities that have been able to, you know, uh, build this infrastructure quickly and successfully. I think it's just creating more opportunity for, you know, hesitation and stops and starts from our, uh, our leaders, because, you know, in the interim, while you have, you know, a, a bike lane here and a bike lane there, but nothing connecting the two of them, there isn't the ridership that that there might be if that network, if we could just snap our fingers and build a network, uh, you know, from, you know, overnight. And so that's then just creating a lot more skepticism and giving fodder, I think, to the people who who don't see any point in bike lanes and they'll be driving by them and, you know, seeing them empty and stuff. And it's a, it's a like I said, you know, we're in this moment of transition where we've just been completely uh, invested in the automobile for so long, for so many decades, we're just beginning to uh, to wean ourselves off of that bit by bit. And, you know, it takes a lot of courage and a, a lot of uh, commitment from elected officials who are willing to um, take the hits. But ultimately, you know, we've we've had this debate already. We've already decided as a city that we cannot continue to uh, to keep investing in in automobiles and and the infrastructure that supports them um, because we are we care about climate change and we care about creating a better planet. So that debate has already happened. But, you know, when it comes to bringing that vision into reality, that's where we're seeing a lot of the the hesitation. And sometimes things fall apart or a project might get watered down to the point that it doesn't really help anybody. And, you know, that's that's uh, not a great outcome. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel for you because we're in the same boat here in in Austin, Texas. We're about the same uh, same uh, area in terms of square miles of the within the city limit. I think we're within a a few miles of each other um, in terms of that over 320 some odd square miles. And it it is a significant challenge. And and to your point, Denver is also experiencing this, too, is, you know, you've got the the build out of some high you know, high comfort protected facilities. Um, but if they're not connected, then there's a real pressure, you know, you know, from the, the, you know, skeptical, you know, motoring public of saying, well, why are we investing in this if it's not being used? One of the, the really creative things that's happening in Denver is the Vamos initiative, where they're looking at the grid of the the quiet residential streets and saying, well, hey, this is a great way to accelerate and get a high comfort bike network in place right away without a lot of cost and a lot, a lot of time, without a lot of time, um, because these are relatively quiet streets and with some traffic calming and some traffic diversion, uh, they could be just beautiful and delightful places for all ages and abilities to be able to use. So I'm hopeful that more cities will be able to emulate uh, that very creative plan and because it goes hand in hand with uh, the the protected facilities, the separated facilities. So we will keep our fingers crossed and to be continued. Very good. Hey, Andrew, uh, again, absolute pleasure. Uh, and for folks, uh, please be sure to subscribe to the uh, podcast, uh, Freeway Exit and uh, don't forget to uh, you know, rate it and also uh, subscribe to it. I believe both Apple Podcasts and Spotify are where you're able to uh, do those ratings. So wherever you get podcasts, you can find Freeway Exit. <laughs> Fantastic. Very good, sir. 
We'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed this episode with Andrew Bowen. And if you did, please give it a thumbs up. <laughs> Leave a comment down below and share it with a friend. And if you haven't done so already, be honored to have you subscribe to the channel. Just click on that subscription button down below. And if you're enjoying this content on the Active Towns channel, please consider supporting my efforts by becoming an Active Towns ambassador. Uh, you can do so via Patreon, buying me a coffee, buying things from the Active Towns store. Um, actually making a tip right here on YouTube. Uh, just click on that button down below, uh, as well as making donations to the nonprofit. Every little bit adds up and is much appreciated. Well, until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. And again, sending a huge thank you out to all my Active Towns ambassadors supporting the channel on Patreon, Buy Me A Coffee, YouTube Super Thanks, as well as making contributions to the nonprofit and purchasing things from the Active Towns store. Every little bit adds up and it's much appreciated. Thank you all so much.